But uh, take your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. And we will be looking this morning at verses 6 through 19. That is almost triple what we looked at last week. Almost triple, like two and a half times. Doesn't mean it's going to take two and a half times as long, though. That's, that's always a good thing, right? Uh, but let's uh, start by uh, asking for the Lord's blessing upon our time. Heavenly Father, uh, we're thankful again for the rain that we received yesterday. And now we're thankful for the sunshine and the cooler weather. Uh, Lord, as we gather this morning as your people uh, in our various churches here in Sutton and also throughout the world, um, Lord, we pray for your blessing upon our time as your people gather. We pray, Lord, that they will come uh, with a sense of purpose in their hearts, uh, with the, the, the goal of worshiping you and exalting high your name and receiving from your hand the means of grace, O oh Lord, so that we can continue on our pilgrim journey throughout this life. We're thankful, Lord, for the way you continue to show your grace and mercy to us each and every day. We're especially thankful, Lord, that we can stand here forgiven and righteous in your sight because of what your son, Jesus Christ, did for us. So now as we study this passage this morning, as we continue to look at your word, Lord, we pray that your spirit will uh, bring illumination and understanding from your word to us so we can uh, know how to walk accordingly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 6, Paul writes, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds... How will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, since you are zealous for the spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. 
So just a um, brief recap from last time. Again, we are in 1 Corinthians 14. And 1 Corinthians 14 is the last chapter in a unit that is talking about the spiritual gifts, which began in chapter 12, verse 1. So if you remember from previous weeks, this section on the spiritual gifts in chapter 12, Paul lays the foundation for the spiritual gifts. Then in, also in chapter 12, he gives an illustration that talks about how the gifts are to function, how they are um, given in the body of Christ. He uses the illustration of a body with its members, its parts. Then in chapter 13, he talks about love being the atmosphere in which the gifts are to operate and function, that if they function without love, your gifts are useless, they're vain, they're empty. And now in chapter 14, he begins to bring his argument to a conclusion. He has laid the foundation, and now he's starting to turn his focus on the problem in Corinth. And the problem in Corinth, of course, is with how they exercise the gift of tongues. And I've mentioned this several times before, it bears repeating. They thought the gift of tongues was the number one gift because it was, in their mind, the, capital T-H-E, the manifestation of the Spirit. It was the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you were filled with the Spirit, you spoke forth in tongues. So therefore, if you did not speak in tongues... You are not filled with the Spirit. Now, that's logically fallacious. That's, a, that's an invalid argument. That's, that's, you, know, you can't say if A, then B, and then go on and say if not B, then not A. You cannot go that way. And that's what Paul says. Look, just because they don't speak in tongues does not mean they are not baptized with the Spirit. That's how the Spirit works. You are Spirit-baptized. God placed members in the body of Christ. Each of you has a manifestation of the Spirit, and that manifestation of the Spirit is for the profit of all. And if you remember last time, of course, now, like I said, he's zeroing in on prophecy and tongues. Tongues, they thought in Corinth was number one. And here he's focusing on prophecy and tongues. And he's going to show that if you're going to exercise a speaking gift, whether that be tongues, whether that be prophecy, whether that be teaching, preaching, exhorting, encouraging, anytime you use your spirit giftedness to open your mouth and utter words in the church, it is better that you utter words that build up, that you utter words that people can understand, that you utter words that, that seek to profit those who hear them. And tongues doesn't serve that function unless you have an interpreter. Unless you have someone who can take what you said in that unknown language and make it known to those who hear it. And that's what he talks about in uh, 14 verses 1 through 5, how prophecy is better, it's greater, unless the one who speaks in tongues interprets. That the church, again, there's that key phrase, that the church may receive edification. And then we also looked last time at the gift of tongues and prophecy because um, since it's so um, central to Paul's argument in chapter 14, we looked at what those two gifts were. And if you recall, uh, tongues is a spirit-given gift by which the speaker speaks forth in a language that he or she has not previously known or studied or understood. That person speaks forth the wonderful works of God. He speaks forth 
praise to God in a language previously unknown. Then we left open whether or not that language is a human language or it could be an angelic language. We didn't uh, speak uh, categorically one way or the other on that. It's just that it has to be a language. It has to be something that conveys meaning in whatever verbal symbols you're using. And then, of course, prophecy is also a spirit-given gift by which the person receives a revelation from the Lord to speak forth words, as Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 14, words of edification, exhortation, and comfort. It is not a thus saith the Lord type of proclamation. That was more reserved for the apostles who were um, in 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 the process, really, of putting forth what would eventually become the New Testament. So in that case, the apostles were more like the thus speaketh the Lord, but the one who has the gift of prophecy could be forthtelling, could be foretelling, but it is something, typically it is a revelation by the Spirit by which they speak forth, usually hear words of edification, exhortation, and comfort. And then we made the argument, and I continue to make the argument, that, that those two gifts are not normative in the church any longer. And the reason is because we now have the complete revelation of God in our hands, we no longer need to receive an inspiration from the Spirit to speak forth words of encouragement. We could speak forth words of encouragement by going to our Bibles. We don't need to speak forth in foreign languages the praises of God because we can translate the Bible into, I don't know how many languages it's been translated into, but it's easily the most translated book ever uh, put forth. Again, it doesn't mean that those gifts cannot function at all, any time in the church period, I just don't think they're normative. So I don't want to go so far as to say they will never, ever, ever, ever be functional in the church during this period of time because I can't say that. But what I can say is I don't think they're normative. I don't think we should expect them, and I don't think we should necessarily then pursue them, and we should seek to be people of the book. Now as we come into verses 6 through 19, and I was thinking about this the other day, you know, we're, we've got maybe two or three more lessons in 14, because I, I, not that I don't like chapter 14, but I, I really want to get to chapter 15, because chapter 15 is the, the resurrection chapter, and I'm not sure why I'm mentioning this. This is, this is free, okay? You don't, you don't have to pay for this part. Um, all, all of God's word is inspired, right? Amen to that? All of God's word is inspired, from Genesis to Revelation, but... In my mind, there are certain parts of God's word that are mountain peaks, right? And then there are certain parts that are valleys. Not, not valleys in a bad way, it's just, it's just the way God's word works out. It's not always going to be mountain peak experience when you read through the Bible. Now, if I had to pick sort of like a Mount Rushmore of chapters in the Bible, you know, like four, you need four on the mountain, 1 Corinthians 15 would be one of them, not in any particular order. Probably 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, John chapter 10, and maybe Psalm 23. Let me think about that one. But certainly those four would be on the list uh, of Mountain Peak chapters. So I'm, I don't want to rush through chapter 14, but I'm, I'm really anxiously looking ahead to chapter 15. And really because I do want to skip over the part where we have to tell the women to be silent in church, too. Um, <laughs> Only the men are laughing at that one. <laughs> Does that mean the women are actually obeying that? <laughs> no, just kidding. 
I know there are some women who would not be silent in a church. But um, I just... Anyway, back to chapter 14. So as we come into this uh, passage we're looking at here, 6 through 19, Paul is going to make the argument that if you're going to use the gift of tongues, it has to be interpreted. It has to be interpreted if it's going to edify the body. Why? Because if you don't interpret the tongues, then no one knows what you're saying. Now, this is, of course, in a context here in which the person in Corinth who is exercising this gift is speaking a language that no one else in that context understands. So this is not like on Pentecost Sunday when the uh, disciples, the 120 disciples, were filled with the Spirit and they began uttering in foreign languages and there was a large gathering there also because it was Pentecost Sunday of uh, Jews and proselytes and God-fearers from all across the, the empire and they were there and were told that they heard the apostles and the disciples speaking in their own languages, proclaiming the wonderful works of God. So they didn't need the interpretation because they understood the languages that the apostles were speaking. But here in Corinth, we have to assume that the person who is exercising this gift is speaking in a, in a language, whether it's human or, or angelic or what have you. They are speaking forth in a language that no one else in Corinth understands unless they are given the gift of interpretation. So, and Paul's going to argue, you have to interpret the tongues if you're going to exercise that gift in the church in order to edify and to build up those in the church so they can give their amen, as we will see later. So that will be the theme that we're going to work through as we look at these verses that are speaking, not just tongue speaking, any speaking. Again, whether it's teaching, preaching, exhorting, encouraging, comforting, our speaking in the church must be understood. And, if it, you know, and, then, and, the, and then the for this context here, tongues must be interpreted. So we have here in our uh, handout that you have this morning uh, three, yeah, three points. So three points, and the first one is in verses 6 through 12, as Paul uh, will say, do not speak into the air. We don't want to be those who are speaking into the air, if you, as you will. So let's look at those verses again, starting in verse 6. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they, make a sound, uh, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance, or none of them is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner, a barbarian, to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous or eager for spiritual gifts, let it be for the building up or edification of the church that you may seek to excel. So Paul begins the section by saying that if I come to you speaking in a tongue, it's not going to profit you unless, unless 
And if I were R.C. Sproul, I would say that unless presents us with a necessary condition that must be satisfied. My tongue speaking will not profit you unless I come to you either with an interpretation or I come to you with also some revelation, knowledge, prophesying, or teaching. So there's no profit if I, if I speak tongues to you without an interpretation. There's no advantage. That's what the word profit there means. It's a profit or advantage. Unless I bring some other kind of revelation to you. And that's, that word is known to us. Uh, it's the name of the book of Revelation. It's the Greek word apocalypsis, a revealing and unveiling. And you've got here sort of a, a kind of a parallel thing here, right? You've got uh, whether I speak to you either by revelation or knowledge, by prophesying or teaching. The prophesying and the teaching, that is the speaking forth of what is given to you either by revelation or by knowledge. If, I, if I'm prophesying something to you, I'm, I'm speaking forth something to you that was given to me by revelation. If I am teaching you something, I am teaching you that I, something that I have accumulated through my knowledge. So you've got the internal source of the content and then the external mode by which that content is delivered. Revelation produces a prophecy. Knowledge produces teaching. And either way... There's no profit unless you understand what is being said. So if you're speaking in a tongue without interpretation, there's no profit unless you bring some other kind of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching to them. The profit comes from the understanding. The advantage comes from the understanding. Tongues are useless without interpretation. And he illustrates that point by entering into the world of music. Now, I know we have at least one, two people here who play a musical instrument. Anybody else play, play a musical instrument? Just Sue and Byron? Okay. So he uses an uh, illustration here by talking about flutes and harps and trumpets. Right? He says, if, whether, if even things without life, so lifeless things like instruments... Uh, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? So every Sunday morning when she's here, Sue will usually begin by some kind of prelude, right? And you may pick up the tune. You may understand the tune. You may know that, oh, I know that song. That's whatever the song it is. Now, if she just went up there and started banging random keys on the piano, you're like, what in the world is that? <laughs> I don't know what that is. I cannot distinguish between the sounds that are being played. The same thing if you, I think even the most musically illiterate person, if you start going, if you just play the keys of a scale, you can kind of hear how one follows after the other. They, they, they go together, and if you were to hit a key that is, a note that is off key, you kind of hear that. It's like the, the discordant sounds, like that, those two sounds don't go together. They, they, they are confusing. They are uh, without distinction. So if, if someone is playing a musical instrument, you cannot... That's like jazz, right? <laughs> that's the common thing about jazz is like, it's just, you're just playing a bunch of notes that don't go together in, in jazz music. I, I jest, but I don't know if there's any jazz fans here. But um, the idea is if you're playing sounds that don't go together and you cannot distinguish them, then you're not, you're not going to know what is played. You won't know what is played. The same thing with a trumpet here. And he uses the example of sort of like a, 
a trumpet that gathers uh, people for, for combat. Um, in Numbers chapter 10, verse 9, we see this here. Um, in chapter 10, verse 9 of the book of Numbers, Moses says to the people, when you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Now, if those trumpets didn't play the right sound, right, you know, in the, in the charge, right, the da 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 however the charge goes, the, 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 the cavalry won't know what to do unless they hear the bugle make that sound. You hear that in, in also in the book of Joshua when they're told to march around Jericho for seven days, and on the seventh day, there to uh, blow forth the, the shofar, the, 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 the trumpets. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 4, And the seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, but the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And then in verse 9, The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And if they did not blow a distinct noise, a distinct sound, the forces of, of Israel would not know to gather. How many any, Has anybody here served in the military? Okay. I, I, I enlisted in the Navy in 1983 when I got out of high school. And when you're in boot camp, what do they wake you up to every morning? Reveille, right? And when you heard that, you knew, I have to get my butt out of my rack and get ready because I'm going to miss chow if, I don't, if I'm not ready for inspection in the morning and then ready to march out to go to the chow hall in the morning. But if, if they just started playing some random trumpet noises in the morning, that might wake me up, but it wouldn't tell me I need to get my butt out in gear and get out of... Uh, of bed and get ready to, to, to go forth. So it has to make a distinct noise. That's the point Paul is making. And he said in chapter 13, right, even if you speak the glorious tongues of angels and all the tongues of men and all these things, if you do not have love, you are what? A banging cymbal and a clanging gong. You, you make no discernible noise. So again, the conclusion here is your words are useless unless you utter words by the tongue, as Paul will say here, easy to understand. Whether you, uh, when you speak words there, that, word, that phrase are easy to understand is well marked or clear or distinct. Your words are useless unless you utter words by the tongue, not, not speaking language. He's just using the word tongue there as the tongue in your mouth, right? Your, your organ of speech. If you speak words by the tongue that are easy to understand. And that applies not just to tongue speaking. Again, it applies to teaching, preaching, whatever you do, whenever you're using your speaking gifts in the church, if they are not easy to understand, it brings no profit. And I, I could tell at times, right? Even my own teaching and preaching here, whether you're getting it or whether you're not getting it. <laughs> whether I'm using words that are clear and easy and distinct, easy to understand, or whether 
I see those glazed looks on your faces, and I realize, okay, I'm, I'm over the head here. If I'm not speaking words, I mean, it may sound like I'm speaking in a tongue, even though I'm using words that are in the English language. So it applies to all speaking gifts. We need to speak words that are easy to understand, otherwise they are useless. And there's an interesting play of words in verse 10 when Paul says there, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Now, when you see the word languages there, and we told you that the word tongue can also be referred to languages, you might think that's the Greek word glossa for tongue or language, but it's not. It is the Greek word phone, phone, sound, voice, noise, right? And what he's saying there is, there are, it may be, so many kinds of sounds or voices in the world. And none of them is, and then that word there, without significance, is aphones. So you've got phone, aphonas. So it's a sound or an unsound, okay? Or not a sound. A distinct sound or not a distinct sound. And he goes on in verse 11, Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, again there, the words, their meaning of the language is literally the power of the voice or sound. That word meaning is the word dunamis. We get the, that's the word power, uh, internal power. Uh, so if you do not understand the power of the sound or the power of the voice, then you're going to sound like a foreigner, a barbarian. And that's a word, uh, I'm going to throw out a word that you should have learned in your elementary school grammar classes, onomatopoeia, have you, you remember that one? You know what an onomatopoeia is? Okay. <laughs> an onomatopoeia is a word that kind of sounds like it means. And that's the word barbarian. It's the word in Greek, barbaros. And it sounds like bar, 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 bar. It, it, it means someone who is uncouth, someone who's, who's gruff or, or rude or harsh, right? Uh, the Greeks thought of anyone who is not a Greek as a barbarian. Think of someone trying to learn the English language and they speak it in a very guttural, harsh, broken way. You know, that would be, in the Greek mind, they would be a barbarian. You're, you know, you, you, you're not cultured. You're not speaking the language right. So if you're speaking words without significance, you're going to sound like a barbarian to someone who knows the language. And, and likewise, it's, it's vice versa. I shall be a foreigner to him, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Think of what happened in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel incident, right? You had all the people of the earth at that time spoke one language. They all understood. They all spoke words to one another that they could understand. And then they decided to gather together and build a tower, in a sense, then storm the, the, the gates of heaven. And God said, no, you're not going to do that. And what does he do? He confuses the language. And all of a sudden, they're speaking to one another, and they don't understand anything anymore. They become barbarians. They become indistinct noises. And then they stop the building project. So the bottom line, of course, in all this then is if you are seeking gifts, if you're seeking to use your gifts as well, seek them for the edification of the church. Verse 12. So even so, since you are zealous and eager 
For spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Pursue those gifts that have the greatest benefit in the body of Christ. Pursue those gifts that can build up. Don't pursue those gifts that sort of put you prominent front and center so you can just sort of display your giftedness. Because that's what the Corinthians were doing. The whole point why Paul writes all this is not just so that we can know what to do, but it's also to correct problems in their church. And we see, we're going to see these problems eventually, but before, you know, he's going to tell them the corrective in uh, verse 27 of chapter 14. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three. Each in turn, let one interpret. Because that's not what they were doing. <laughs> he tells them to do that because you can imply that's not what they were doing. So what, what were they doing? Well, they were probably just whoever had the gift of tongues would just go up and just start babbling around and no one would be there to interpret and that's just a cacophonous sound of noise. So you have to work in a way that edifies the church. You have to work in a way that, pers- that uh, pursues the gifts that give the greatest benefit in the church. This is the whole point of Paul's argument in this section. Right? Chapter 12, verse 7. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So now Paul's going to move on in verses 13 through 17. Because the point of the previous section that we just looked at was to show that tongues without interpretation is not advantageous to the church. They produce uncertain sounds. They produce unprofitable sounds. So here in this section, he's going to tell us then we need to unite our spirit with our understanding. Look at verses 13 through 17. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you don't sing with the Spirit and with the understanding, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed? That's an interesting phrase. We'll look at that when we get there. How will that person say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. So if you're speaking in a church with a tongue, you need to pray for interpretation. You need to be able to, to pray that the Lord will not only allow you to speak in this tongue, but that it may be known to all. Because the Holy Spirit gives the gift of tongues, and he gives the gift of understanding or interpretation. In the list that Paul gives in chapter 12, he says to another, different kinds of tongues. Another, you know, The Spirit gives to another, different kinds of tongues, and then to another, the interpretation of tongues. So pray for interpretation. Now, now I think Paul may be being a little ironic here, uh, because if you're praying in a tongue, presumably you're praying to God in a language you don't understand. So how can you pray also for interpretation in a language you do not understand? I think Paul might be being a little ironic here. But he goes on in verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. 
And praying in a tongue and a spirit, the, the word there, spirit, is pneuma. Uh, it's the, we use the word for Holy Spirit. It means spirit or wind or breath. And, and, and spirit is part of what we would call the immaterial part of the human being. The human being is a body-soul creature. Right? We are created with a physical body. We are created with an immaterial soul or spirit. The, the Bible uses those words interchangeably. Soul, spirit. Uh, and, and spirit here is, in a sense, though, that part of your immaterial being that is attuned to God. Okay? Um, usually when we think of our spirits, we think of our mind, our understanding, our emotions, our feelings, and our will, that part that moves us into action. But here Paul is saying, when you're praying in a tongue, your immaterial part that is, in a sense, like God, because God is also a spirit, is communicating with God and is fruitful. But your mind, your understanding, is unfruitful because it doesn't know what you're saying. It doesn't know what you're praying. So it bears no fruit when you pray in a spirit or when you sing in a spirit. Because it seems like you can do either here. Either way, you're praising God in a language you don't know. Your mind is unfruitful because it does not know what you're saying. So he says, what is the conclusion? Verse 15. Well, I want to pray in the Spirit, but I also want to pray with my understanding. I want to sing in the Spirit, but I also want to sing with my understanding. In other words, I want both. I want to unite my spirit with my understanding, my mind. I want to be able to not only praise God, but I also want to know how I'm praising God. It is, it is fruitful to exercise the gift of tongues, but it is much more fruitful than to unite the spirit with the understanding because building up of the church, encouragement in the church, edification in the church only comes through the mind, through the understanding. That's Paul's point here. And without uh, interpretation, that's what he goes on in verse 16, otherwise if you bless with the Spirit, so if only your Spirit is blessing or praising or singing to God, and then you get this weird phrase, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed? It's like how, how many words can you use to, to translate one Greek word? How will he who occupies the space of the uninformed? That's ten words. Okay, The word in Greek there is idiotes. What does that sound like to you? Idiot. <laughs> now, it's not like how we use the word idiot. Okay, you know, For us, it's a pejorative that you're, you know, duh, you know, you're an idiot, you're stupid. Here, the word idiot literally just means someone who is unlearned, someone who is ignorant. Right, So think of someone who comes into the church, doesn't know you're a tongue-speaking church. They come in, and here are a bunch of Corinthians going forth in their tongues, and their blah, 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 whatever they're saying you know, to, to God in the unknown language. And the person's like sitting there, he's like, hmm, I wonder if I, should I say amen at this part? I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know amen? <laughs> yeah. I was... That just reminded me of a Saturday Night Live clip way back when they were kind of good, when Eddie Murphy was on the, on the cast. And Eddie Murphy would often do imitations of James Brown. And if you know anything about James Brown, you could hardly understand what the guy was singing. So he, Eddie Murphy played the part of the James Brown backup singers. And he's back there, 
and James Brown would say something, and he's like, what do we do? What should you say? Just say, yeah. It's like, yeah. You know, just like you do in the backup vocals. But if the person there who is uninformed, unlearned, ignorant, is in your church service, and you've got people speaking in tongues, how is he going to say amen? Now, our Baptist brethren will look at that and say, that's scriptural warrant for saying amen in a church service. And I would concur. You guys are allowed to respond to things in church with an amen, and I encourage you to do that. Let's not be the frozen chosen. There you go. (laughs) Uh, How will they be able to, to, to acknowledge that you are giving thanks? How can they understand? Paul says in verse 7, you may be giving things very well, but the other person, the uninformed, is not uh, edified. They're not built up. So without interpretation, the uninformed will not be able to add their amen, so let it be, to your prayer or song, for they lack understanding. I, I, I listen to the Daily Wire as one of my news sources, and there's a couple of the hosts on the Daily Wire who are very ardent Catholics. And it's okay when they don't talk about their faith because they're very ardent Catholics. When they start talking about the Roman Catholic faith, I, I kind of cringe because they're so Roman Catholic. It's not even, they're not even like nominal Catholics. And one of them was talking about how he wants to go back to the Latin Mass. I'm thinking, why? <laughs> why would you do that? <laughs> I mean, when was the Latin Mass sort of officially, well, I shouldn't say ended, when did they allow people to speak in the vernacular in the Roman Catholic Church? I think it was like 1965 or 3. Whenever Second Vatican was ratified, it was in the early to mid-60s, they said you no longer have to use the Latin Mass, which means for 1900 and some odd years, the Roman Catholic Church has been using Latin only in their Mass. How are you built up in a church service where you don't know what the priest is saying? I mean, you may be able to pick up certain words if you've grown up in it from day one to day whatever. You may know, okay, Spiritus Sanctum is Holy Spirit, you know, Patro is Father, so on and so forth. You may be able to understand that. You may be able to recite the Lord's Prayer in Latin, but again, you don't know. People cannot participate when they don't know what is being said. And, and that just illustrates, a desire to go back to a Latin Mass illustrates the backwards nature of the Roman Catholic Church, if that's the case. All right, let's get ready to finish here. Understanding leads to edification in verses 18 and 19. Paul goes on, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, Paul begins here, he's, he's thanking God that he speaks with tongues, so tongues are good, right? Now, the problem was in Corinth, they thought tongues was everything, and Paul's like, no, no, prophecy's better in the church, but tongues are good. Tongues are good. They are a glorious gift. They are given by the Holy Spirit, right? Every, you know, James 1, uh, 13, I believe, uh, every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. They are good. God is good. He gives good gifts. Tongues is a good gift. So we should not denigrate the gift of tongues. And here Paul tells him, it's like, look, I spoke in tongues more than you all. So 
In other words, he's, he's coming at this not as someone who never spoke tongues, right? If he never spoke tongues and he comes into the church saying prophecy is better than tongues, well, the tongue speakers can just say, well, Paul's not blessed by the Spirit, right? He's just speaking as one who doesn't speak in tongues. Of course he's going to say prophecy is better because he's not a tongue speaker. No, Paul says, look, I spoke in tongues more, I speak in tongues more than you all. Um, I have no reason to not take him at his word here. Uh, He probably spoke in tongues quite often. So he's doing so from the perspective of one who spoke in tongues. And he says, look, as a tongue speaker in the church, I would rather speak five words that people can understand than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why? Because understanding is better. Understanding leads to edification. And note that phrase there, key, in the church. In the church. Verse uh, 19, yet in the church. The number one thing in the church is the building up of others in their faith, not showing others how gifted you are. And again, that's what was going on in Corinth, presumably, because why would, Paul not, why would Paul say what he's saying here if that's not what was going on in Corinth? The tongue speakers were up there parading their gifts to shine the light on themselves, not to benefit others. And Paul's like, look, as one who speaks in tongues more than any of you, I would rather just come up there and say five simple words that all of you can understand than to stand up here in the spotlight and speak forth 10,000 in a tongue. For Paul, it was simple mathematics. What's better? What's better for the church? Speaking words you can understand in order to teach. That word there, teach, catecheo, catechesis, catechism. I'd rather speak words that can teach and build up and encourage someone than being self-absorbed. The point, again, Paul is making is that this church was spiritually immature. Right? That's what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. I would love to speak to you as spiritual people, but you're carnal. You're babes in Christ. Babies are immature, right? Babies are all about me, 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 right? (laughs) Pick me up, hug me, give me, give me, feed me, you know. Someone who's mature is like, no, no, I will will subvert my needs. I will subvert my own self-promotion in order to help you out. And who thinks here Paul could probably speak more than five words with understanding, right? (laughs) Paul could speak quite often, I'm sure. But he said, I I would rather just limit myself to five simple words that you can understand than speak in a bunch of words that you don't understand. And that's all we have here for this morning. The point, again, I want to drive home is that whatever, you know, again, because tongues are not normative in the church, our speaking in the church needs to be understood. And even you, you may be even speaking in a normal English dialect, but you need to be understood. Right? You know, I shouldn't be speaking English that needs to be interpreted. Okay? Um, and, 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 and in the church... It is all about building up one another, right? This is all about the one another's of the Bible. Love one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, exhort one another, um, rebuke one another if necessary. We have to be about the one another's in the church. And Corinth was not about the one another's. They were about, 
me, myself, and I. So, yeah, there were about a group of people. It was just me, myself, and I. Uh, not about you. Not about us. Not about the church. Which is why Paul exhorts them in 13 about love. You need to have love. Love never fails. Love will exercise the gifts in the church so that others are built up. Because love is giving of yourself to meet the needs of another. So we'll stop here, and we'll pick up um, next week, uh, verses 20, probably 20 through 25. Um, We'll see. 20 through 25 at least.